Turn to the first chapter of James, please. The first chapter of the book of James. Um, I'd like for you to follow along as I read verses 2 through 12. Consider it all joy, my brethren, that when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humili humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is nothing any more universal than trials. Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God will lead us to His blessed promised land. And we wonder why the test when we try to do our best, but well, we'll understand it better by and by. Trials are universal, and they come crowding into our lives, and they seem never to go away. Luther said that man is bruised with adversity and we all have the marks to prove it. Bruised with adversity and disappointment and rejection and sorrow and the beat goes on and on. David said many are the afflictions of the ungodly. No, that's not what he said. He said many are the afflictions of the righteous. And Paul said that we are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And if you follow the trail of his life, it would be like following the trail of a wounded game. It would be a path of blood. And Peter said, don't be surprised, don't be shocked by the fact that you will experience fiery trials as though it's something you couldn't expect or shouldn't expect. Life is filled with trouble. And you and I have one thing in common, at least one thing in common, that is we will experience trials in this life before we leave it. Now it's interesting to me that this man who deals with the practical things of life begins with a, with a, with a, with a message on trials. And so I want to pick that up tonight, begin this series on James in this practical way, and we're going to see this sermon in light of four questions. 
first question is that is uh, what are some things that are true about trouble? Two are true. First of all, troubles are inevitable. Notice in this text that it's not if you experience trials, but when you experience them. The question tonight is not who will ex encounter trials. The question is when will those trials come and what kind of nature will they assume when they come crowding into our lives? One thing that is sure about every person here tonight is this, that you have somewhere in the past endured a fiery trial, or you're in one tonight, or there is one waiting right around the corner from you, for you. When he says, when he uses the word various trials, it's divers in the King James. I'm glad he helps us to understand what that means. The word comes from, a, from the root word that means polka dot. And what he's saying is this, that your life is polka dotted with trials. And they're different sizes, and they're different shapes, and they're different colors. But they are inevitable. You will experience trials and troubles. They're inevitable. The second thing that is true about trials or troubles is that they have a purpose. Now the, second, the, the text suggests that there is a threefold purpose for trials. One is that it produces, or trials produce endurance. The word means to, to bear under. It's the idea of bearing under, hanging with, even though there is no you know, no evidence, no hope on the surface to bear under the trials and endure. And it's really more than just to endure. It's the idea of, of encountering these trials in life and not just enduring them, but, but vanquishing them and making them work for victory. Um, the picture of one who has gained this unshakable faith in God, unwavering faith, now, I'm absolutely convinced tonight that, that a person will never have an unwavering, unshakable faith until he goes through a trial. And the people that I know who have this solid, this foundational faith that endures, that bears under every kind of thing that happens triumphantly, the people that are able to do that are the people who have been bathed in tears and immersed in trouble because there's something about a trial if it is endured in faith that just develops this unwavering confidence unshakable faith it was after Job had lost everything that he said I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear but now mine eye seeth thee and it was after all human confirmation that God cared was gone Jesus could cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. What trials produce is an unwavering faith. Secondly, they provide, not only do they produce endurance, but they provide evidence. And that's what he's talking about when he uses the word approved. It means it gives witness to or gives evidence. It gives proof so that through the trial and the fiery trial of trouble, there is the witness of the proof of one's faith. The word is dokima. 
And when there was a vessel that was to be proved, it would be placed in the fiery furnace. And if it, if it survived the fire and didn't crack, it was called dokima. It was placed on the bottom of the vessel. And if it cracked, they took that vessel and sold it on a bargain counter because it had a flaw in it. And so that kind of faith that's been tested in the fire and is proved is what he's talking about. It gives, it provides evidence. When I was a kid growing up, you could get your driver's license by the time you were 14. And, uh, I mean, we were like death and destruction released on the highway, you know, as 14-year-old uh, kids. But my, we lived way out in the country, and my mother didn't drive, and so I was... Uh, uh, conscripted to drive the car when I was about 12 or 13 years of age I, I would uh, look under the steering wheel you know and drive and so we'd go to town all the way into town and take mother to the market or whatever and father would be busy and we'd take back roads and park on the back streets and I was driving when I was about 12 or 13 years of age so by the time I got my license I'd already learned to was already driving but when I got my license, I had the proof of it. Now you may be, you may have faith, and you may give testimony of that faith, but when you come through the fire, then you have the proof of it. That's the approval. It provides, it presents evidence, and it predisposes maturity. I want you to look at verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing that is there's like the domino effect a person who goes through the trial and and experiences that victory that comes in trials becomes a person of deep great character uh, let me see if I can put it in an in, in illustration that that we can relate to um, here's a teenager who um, is tempted to uh, sacrifice her purity. I was interested, um, where, did I, where did I see this recently, where this um, young lady was the only one in her group that was still a virgin, and her peers were putting the pressure on her to sacrifice that virginity. She made this statement, this is what she said, um, if I live to be a hundred years old, you can never be like I am. I can always be like you are, but you can never be like I am again. And that peer pressure is applied to sacrifice one's purity, and that, that young lady, that Christian, endures the trial. And what happens is, it begins her on the road to maturity, to the perfect person, to the complete person God desires for her. Or here's the young man who's, who's under tremendous pressure by his peer groups to go with the rest of the crowd. And he endures that trial, and it sets him on his way to maturity. And that's why young people respect, you know, they have this tremendous respect for this person who is in, able to endure the trial victoriously. Or here's a businessman who is, who is tempted to sacrifice his conscience 
for a little money, and he endures the trial, and he becomes this complete person, this mature person that's called perfect in the Scriptures. So it predisposes maturity. The way to maturity is to endure the trial victoriously. You see what I'm saying? What are some things true about trials? They're inevitable, and they're for a reason. Secondly, how can I rise above my troubles? That is, how can I conquer my trial before it conquers me? Now, I want you to take a pencil. I want you to circle three words. Will you pull the curtain up there for me, Dwayne? This thing is blinding me there. Get that light. That sun is right in my eyes. Thank you, my friend. Um, yeah. As long as you do what I tell you to, we're in good shape. Thanks, Dwayne. <laughs> I want you to take the word, uh, take a pencil and circle the word consider in verse 2. Circle the word knowing in verse 3. And circle the word let in verse 4. I was um, impressed to hear the prayer tonight. Uh, that, that uh, Bill prayed, Lord, help the, the, give the preacher uh, a message that could help us in a practical way. That, that is what we need. Is there some way that I can conquer trial, trouble, you see? Right? Beside those two words, I'd like for you to write in pencil, consider, so it help you understand it. Beside the word consider, you put the word consider. Beside the word know, you put the word comprehend. And beside the word let, you put the word cooperate. Though that's the key to conquering trials. First, consider. And what he means by this is to consider trials with a certain mindset. A certain mindset. The mindset he's talking about is the mindset of joy. It's interesting that this word consider comes from the Greek word that means leading thought or leading into. So that what he's saying is that when you approach the trial that comes, you need to let the leading thought, the thought that leads you into consideration of this trial, that leading thought, that mindset would be a positive mindset of joy. Now, there are several ways that you and I can respond to trials. Some of us get bitter and we, we uh, uh, have a lot of uh, hatred in our heart. We get bitter about it. Some, take the, when trials come, they repress or suppress them. Like pushing a balloon down in the bathtub, it pops out on the other end you know, in, in something called depression. Some people deal with trials in a very stoical way and, and say no matter how straight the gate or charged with punishment the scroll, my, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, my head may be bloody but it's unbowed. And like a stoic they grit their teeth and bear it but James gives us this remarkable revolutionary way to consider trials. He said don't divide life's experiences into good experiences and bad experiences. See every experience of life as a source of deep and abiding joy. And you approach the trial with this mindset, with a positive mindset. God has this for a reason. 
God's permitting this for a purpose. And if you can say, let this be the leading thought, God, come and teach me all that you want me to learn in this, if your response to that testing is like that, you're a rare person, and you're in for some wonderful lessons from God, if you can do that, consider. The second way to endure trials is in, found in the word comp comprehend or comprehension. It's the comprehension of the good of that trial. It's an understanding that the trial is not for bad but for good. Now how we can know that and be confident of that is that trials come, they must pass through the hand of a good God, a benevolent God. That God is so bound to protect His children, His people, that He's not going to let anything happen to them that will, ultimately, that will not ultimately work for their good. He withholds no good thing, the Scripture says. So that the trial comes not to, to cause me to fail, but to, to see me succeed. The whole point of the trial is that, that, it, that it is not sent to make us fall, but to make us sore. It's not sent to make us weaker, it's sent to make us stronger. And then there's the word cooperate. It's found in the word let, and it means let it happen. Don't fight against it. You've got to permit it. Now watch this carefully. The key, the big thing, is not what happens to you in life. That's not what makes or breaks you. What makes or breaks you is how you respond to what happens to you. It's your response to that. Now, he says a strange thing. He says, don't struggle against the trial. Now, what's the first thing you and I do when trials come? We, we resist them. We do everything we can to avoid them. And when we pray, we beg God to remove them. And we seek every avenue of escape from the trial, and it just may be that it's there for God to use the, to shape us. Well, you see, God is not interested so much in our comfort as He is in our character. And Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what's on your hand? Your fingers. I'm, you, you remember when you were a kid? I don't know whether your mother was like mine or not, but when I was a kid sitting in church, she had this way of keeping my attention focused on the preacher. It was called pinch. And she was this little old bitty lady. Mother, somebody asked me the other day, said, what was your mother like physically? She I'm sure the question was designed because she thought she was this big rotund, you know, because I am. But she's a little bitty, weighed less than 100 pounds. But, I, but I, I'm sure that if she could get a giant oak between her thumb and finger, she could snap it. I mean, she had that much strength. In her, and, and I'd be sitting in church, you know, and get a little impatient, a little tired of the preaching, like most of us do, and squirm a little bit. And I'd feel this, you know, this hand, and she'd have her hand on me, and she'd be patting me and stroking me, and when I'd get the twisting around, and then it'd just kind of just cut the blood, you know, just pinch a hunk out. Now, as long as I, you know, as long as I uh, sat there in submission, non, in non-resistant, passive obedience, 
that hand was there to, to love and to stroke. Step out of line, it was there to bring you back in line. Isaiah said, Woe unto him who strives with his maker. Can the clay say to the potter, Why have you made me thus? You remember the vision of Jeremiah, and there the potter was working his vessel on the wheel, and when that clay was responsive to the hand. Now watch carefully. As long as that clay was responsive to the hand of the potter, he could make and shape the design and the, and, the, and the vessel as he wanted it. When it resisted the hand of the potter, the, the scripture says that it became marred. Now watch this carefully. The thing that made the vessel unique was the point where the potter applied the pressure with his hand. The thing that made the vessel different from all other vessels was where the potter applied the pressure of his hand. Now you may feel the hand of God upon your life, but where you are submissive to that hand is where God makes you unique. And just remember that that hand that's applied to your life is the hand of a gracious God who wants nothing less than perfection, nothing less than the best from you. And if you look closely at that hand, you'll see holes in it, nail prints in it, because it is a hand of love. And I want you to get this principle. The only time the pressure of his hand hurts the clay is when the clay resists the hand. Now, how do I conquer my trouble? Well, I'm going to find some way to escape it or to overcome it. No, the way to conquer it is to submit yourself to him, to his hand, to his pressure because that's where he makes you unique. All right, why do troubles overwhelm me? For two reasons. Number one, there is a lack of wisdom. Verse 5 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now that's strange place for that to be found in the context of trials of suffering, that he's talking about wisdom. Most of the time when we use this verse, it's usually in relation to a decision we're having to make. And that uh, does apply, but in the, in the context, what he's talking about is this, that if you're having a problem with trials, and these trials are about to crush you, you need to ask God for wisdom, because the reason why you're having such trouble with, with the trials, you don't have wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? We've already been down this road before. Wisdom in the biblical sense is the ability to view life from God's vantage point. So what you're praying for is this, God help me to view this trial from your vantage point. Help me to see this from, what, from the way you see it. Help me to get a grasp of understanding about what's happening to me as you understand it. Most of us look at life and the experiences of life like, like a person looking 
at a parade through a knot hole in the fence. All he can see is what's directly in front of him. And if he evaluates a parade by what he can see through that knot hole, he, thinks, he may think a parade, all it is, is a bunch of drums. But if he could get above the fence and see the whole parade, he'd have a totally different perspective. That's what he's telling you to do. He's telling you to ask God to get you above the fence and see the whole thing from his perspective. Wouldn't it be amazing how differently we would approach life if we had wisdom? There is a second reason why they overwhelm us, and that is a lack of faith. Now, wisdom is gaining God's insight. Faith is gaining God's strength. It's strength that sustains so in verse 6 and 7, he talks about a double-minded man, and he draws the analogy of these waves that come in and go out, and he's saying that this double-minded man is a person who wants God's will this moment, and he wants his own will the next, and then he wants God's will, and then he wants his will, and there's this, un this wavering instability. What he's talking about, you know how to catch a monkey? Missionaries tell us that the way you catch a monkey is that you'll probably need to know this. The way you catch a monkey is to get a coconut, drill a little hole in it just big enough for him to squeeze his hand through, tie the coconut to a tree, fill it with nuts and fruit, and the monkey comes, squeezes his little hand through the, the small little opening in the coconut, gets himself a handful of nuts and fruit, then he can't get his hand out. He won't turn loose. He'll sit there consigned to the coconut because he won't turn his hand loose. Faith, watch this, faith is more than believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Faith is opening our hand up in submission to the will of God. It's saying, okay God, my life is in your hands. And some of us have faith, but it's tied to so many presumptions of what God will do or will not do so that there are many people who are overwhelmed by their troubles because they make their faith dependent upon God acting in a certain way toward them. And if he happens to veer away from their expectations, they become disillusioned. And they, they like the wave that goes back. I heard J.D. Gray tell one day, by the way, he's one of the best preachers that I've ever heard, pastor at New Orleans First Baptist Church for years. He said he went up to the, he was in the hospital, his wife was uh, uh, undergoing some severe test for a malignancy. And he said, I, I was in this hospital in New Orleans and they came out and told me that she had cancer and probably would die. And he said, I'll never forget it. I walked down, I was on the 14th floor of that hospital. He said, I walked down to the end of the hospital, to the end of that floor, and looked out of the window overlooking the city of New Orleans, the city that I loved and pastored. And he said, I stood there looking out over that city. I'd been up most and down most of those streets. He'd been pastor there like for 30 years. And he said, first thing I did was remind God how faithful I'd been to his call there, that city, and couldn't understand why my wife was 
suffering over here and probably would die when I had been such a good boy. He said, then I, then I thought, well, that might not be enough, so I struck a bargain. He said, I said to God, Lord, I'll increase my efforts. I'll do more. I'll serve you better if you'll just let her live. And then he said, I broke through in faith, and I got out on my knees on that gray day, both in the cold winter that it was and the gray day in my life, and said, No, God, I'll serve you whatever. How do you overcome your, how do you overcome, how do you conquer trials? It's when you and I stop complaining that God's given us a raw deal, has shaken us a bad hand. It's when we decide that we're no longer going to bargain with God and we're going to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. So they hauled in the Hebrew children in the book of Daniel and threatened to torture them. One of them said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us out of thy hand. We believe God will deliver us from the fiery furnace, from the trial, but if we, He doesn't, we're going to serve Him anyway. That's the kind of faith that overcomes. And I think that's the kind of faith that a that, that a person has to, has to come to some point in life. The younger you do it, the better you are, kids. Is that regardless of what happens to you in this life, you're going to serve God no matter how hot the fire gets. And the most wonderful thing about that story of the Hebrew children was that it was only when these men got in the furnace that the pagan king saw the Lord in their life. Isn't that significant? And so he looked in that fiery furnace and said, I, how many guys did we chunk in here? And they said, we chunked three in there. So that's what I thought. But there's a fourth in there, and he looks like unto the Son of Man. You know what he was saying? The only time I was able to see God in the lives of these people is when they got in the middle one last thought when I have handled my trouble correctly what then verse 12 blessed is a man who perseveres under trial circle the word blessed it's a word that you've heard before if you've read the Sermon on the Mount blessed is he that hungers and thirsts after righteousness etc etc and the word means to enjoy the bliss of God. It means the, the happiness, the bliss that God experiences. Now what he's saying is this, that if you handle trials correctly, and if you respond to trials on the basis of what we've talked about, if that's it, and you, and you have allowed this trial to shape and mold you and purify you and prove you, what you come out with is the same joy that God has. It's amazing. You can feel towards this like God feels toward life. You have the bliss of God. The second thing he says, now watch this carefully. 
He says the second thing about it is that you have the crown of life. Now that means, listen to this please, it means not that you get a crown in heaven with little stars in it for, for reading your daily Bible reading. Paying the preacher and visiting on Monday night. Not that that doesn't count. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a crown you wear in life. Now, if I see somebody with a crown walking around with a crown on, I'm going to think one of two things. I'm going to think he's headed to a costume party or I'm going to think he's a king. If I see a king walking around, he has a crown on his head. I got a pretty good idea. I'm dealing with somebody special. The thing that marks you out as somebody special, triumphant and victorious, is how you deal with trials. And folks walk around and they see on your head a crown. Now, not literally. But they see in you somebody who is sovereign and victorious. Somebody who has dominion dominion and they see all of a sudden a dominion life a triumphant life a king's life they 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 when they see you young people when they see you they see you look like looking like a king who has dominion over self and over the universe and over creatures and over things and they understand that you are like the first man that God put in the garden before he sinned and said, you pass this test and you'll be in charge of everything in this world. You pass the test. You pass the trial. You endure the suffering. You go through the peer pressure. You come out on the other side. You experience the trouble and the trial that come in life. And what you get is not rejection. What you get is not isolation and separation. What you get is not mockery. People's making fun of you. What you get is the recognition of dominion life, of a king's life. And they see you as a victor. And somebody said that all of us experiencing trials, all of us, are just facing a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as an unsolvable problem. I love it. Trials are great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. Now, let's be sure we got it. What are some things that are true about trials? They're inevitable. They have a purpose. How can I rise above them, conquer them? By letting the lead thought be the thought of positive joy. By a comprehension of what trials really are, they're there to strengthen us. And by submission, letting God do his work in the trial, letting him, giving him permission. Why do trials overwhelm us? 
because we're not seeing trials from God's perspective and we don't have faith that means we've not opened our hand to God in submission when I've handled my trials correctly what then I find this joy I've noticed this in my own experience. I know this experientially and I know it professionally. That every time I fail a test, I feel terrible. I feel ashamed. I feel disappointed in myself. But every time I pass one, I feel so great. It gives joy. Every victory brings joy. The bliss of God and the crown that marks you out as one who is able to live the dominion life. Let's pray together. Whatever you would have in our life, Lord, send. Whatever you would want, take. Wherever you would have us go, Lord, anyone here tonight who would like to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? No one can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit convinced your heart, been working on you? Do a circle around you say, okay, you're it. He's been working on you. You'd like to come tonight and say, I confess with my mouth Jesus Christ. My Savior, Anybody here would like to join the church? Bless your life and service with God's people. There might be some tonight who would like to come and say, Hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come. I'm going to, I'm going to commit my life to Christ, to serve Him, regardless of what happens. Make that commitment once and for all. We'll sing one or two stanzas.